Welcome to the Zulu Time podcast, a straight talking conversation between two watch enthusiasts about the world of military watches. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 66 of the Zulu Time podcast with your host Dan from Timely Underscore Moments. So welcome to the first episode of 2023. Um, I trust everybody had an enjoyable um, Christmas break and New Year you know, period. Um, I hope obviously um, all of you have come back to work safely. You know, you're all getting on with your lives and you, you know, you've got your plans set out for 2023. And obviously I hope uh, in terms of watch stuff for you guys um, that you manage to go off and achieve what you want to do within the watch fam. And I also look forward to seeing the, my podcast grow um, as well as engaging with you guys, the audience on both the podcast side, as well as the page and, you know, just genuinely continuing this journey of collecting military watches. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, just so you're aware, guys, if you haven't realised this and you've joined the podcast later, which isn't a problem, um, my podcast is now three years old. So this episode, episode 66, is in theory the third anniversary of the Zulu Time podcast. And um, I was going through my notes prepping for today's episode a little bit. And firstly, I realised that this weekend, um, obviously when this uploads, is the third anniversary. But I also realised that the subject is quite pertinent to the Zulu Time podcast, because the first history episode that the Zulu Time podcast ever recorded back in 2020, uh, back in in lockdown, as it were, was the history of trench watches and the first issued watches to um, the military. And with that being uh, being the initial topic of the Zulu Time podcast, and we obviously followed that history right up to 2020, effectively, um, I've got a really cool guest on today and like I said it's just serendipitously happened but I've got Stan from LRF Antique Watches so Stan thank you very much for coming onto the podcast and giving up your time to speak to me today. Oh very glad to be here Dan. Um, So for those who don't know I'm going to give you a bit of an intro Stan and obviously you can correct me if I'm wrong but Stan Stan runs LRF Watches. He is also a big Waltham Watches watch geek, effectively. And he's written a, a couple of, um, in fact, I think three books, maybe three oh, books. Three. Three books, there you go. Um, on uh, American watchmaking, um, as well as Waltham Watches. And it covers trench watches and World War One and all that kind of stuff. All the stuff that the Zulu Time podcast started with. So that is... Stan, and that's why we brought him on today. We want to talk about his new book. We want to talk about LRF watches as well, um, and a bit of the history of Waltham, because I think it's really important to highlight Waltham as an American watch brand, because I think they've obviously made a resurgence. I know a couple of friends of mine who have got some of the reissued Waltham deployer watches, um, and um, absolutely loved them. Um, but obviously with this resurgence, you know, obviously people are going back onto eBay, onto auction sites and seeking out dealers who can find the originals. And I think that's fantastic. Um, before we get into all things LRF, Stan, um, we are a watch podcast. So we uh-huh. have two we have two traditions on my podcast. One is the wristwatch check at the beginning and obviously at the end with the closing notes. So as you're my guest on, my, on today's episode, what watch should you have on your wrist today? Uh, today, I am actually two-time in it. Nice. Yes. Um, I'm wearing a 2022 Waltham Field and Marine. 
yeah. uh, the reissue that you just mentioned. Yep. Um, and on my other wrist, I am wearing an original. Fantastic. Uh, welcome to Poyer Field and Marine. Nice. So um, obviously, I can see it. Obviously, then, you know, the audience can't. It's only not an, an audio episode. Um, I've noticed that there's two case finishes there that's slightly different, different dials combination, and there's a slightly different size to obviously between the modern and, and the uh, original. Um, if you were to suggest people to go and find, you know, one or the other, which one would you tell them to start with? Because obviously these watches, the original watches must be quite hard to get a hold of. Um, yes, I would, uh, I would start with one of the new ones. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the DNA of the original, obviously, if you put them side by side, the original and the new, um, you can see the original watches DNA um, over a hundred, you know, about a hundred years later mm -hmm. um, in the new model. Uh, the big fat crown, uh, the two shoulders for the locking cap on either side. Um, hands are somewhat similar. Um, basically, it wasn't a reissue. It was basically when we were doing all this, it was how would Charles de Poyer make this watch today? Mm -hmm. Um, obviously it's not going to look identical, you know, traditions change, uh, you know, flavors change, designs change. Um, so everything, uh, pretty much got revamped. Um, but you can still just by looking at them side by side, see they are of the same family. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they look really cool. I think they're a really unique design. I like the crown. I've seen uh later uh deployer case um waltham uh, and i missed it actually i was going to go back and buy it because it looked really interesting uh, but you're right with those wing the winged crown and the shoulders and how that kind of um effectively looks like it kind of twists and bayonets into the case to provide that water resistance so i think it's really cool case design um but also like oh, said, it, it, it most uh the the originals most certainly were there was there was literally nothing else like it. Mm -hmm. um, this is the world's first waterproof watch, mm -hmm. no matter what, what others say in, mm -hmm. uh, in, in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, the original Waltham de Poyer Field and Marine and Waltham de Poyer Thermos did have a screw down crown. Mm -hmm. There is, if you look closely, um, you can see there is one giant thread. It's not several mm -hmm. threads going all the way around. It is one giant heavy duty thread okay. and you you actually do push the crown in um and turn it forward to get you know to to get a a a, a tight seal using that thread so <laughs> it, it is a screw down crown yeah that's really cool that really cool so and um, that, yeah go ahead Sorry, I was about to say, in honor of obviously today's subject, my, my watch is not waterproof, but my watch is an issued watch as well. Um, I've got a old Vertex um, ATP from 1940 nice. on my wrist. Um, slightly different in design, obviously, because it's later on. Um, but I like the ATP watches, mainly because they're available, to be perfectly honest, at a more acceptable price point to their more famous later cousins, shall we say, the, the Dirty Dozen watches. Um, <laughs> If there are, obviously, not that I'm about to say that um, the Zulu Time podcast has uh, any 
influence in the watch uh, collecting community um, to the levels that I like to think it does. But um, if I were you or, you know, as a suggestion, if anyone's after a World War II issued watch, I'd always have a look at the ATP watches, mainly because they're just a little bit more available. Um, the payoff or the payoff is that you'll get a World War II watch that is slightly cheaper than a Dirty Dozen. But I guess the downside to that is the physical case size is quite small. Um, they range from third, uh, 29 mil to 31. So a lot of people can't really wear them. And I noticed that obviously with your wrist check earlier, what is the original diameter of the um, original Waltham trench watches? Um, the, the waterproof Dupoyer Field and Marine, um, that was 36 millimeters, okay. which was qu quite sizable um, for yeah. World War One. Usually your average run-of-the-mill World War One watch on the American side uh, was 31 millimeters up to about 32.7, 32.8. Um, but then you had your, your specialty watches that were like... Um, like a size six, uh, which would be 38 millimeters. Um, and then they, believe it or not, they actually had 43 and 44 millimeter watches um, made by the Americans for Elgin and Waltham for the pilots. Yeah, I was about to say, I was about to ask. I and and those, uh, those giant ones, you might've saw that mm -hmm. on my Insta the other day, the, yeah. the octagon shaped one. Yeah. yeah, I think that one's 43 millimeters. And that was in 1918. I mean, that is, I mean, that's a modern day size. Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, I've got some watches in the case behind me. Um, my largest, um, my largest watches, actually, my Bremont watches are 43 mil across. So, you know, like you said, given the fact that the average watch was probably in the high 20s back then, may pushing the low 30s in mil, you know, um, to have a 43 mil watch is probably basically like you said it would have been comparable to a pocket watch by then you know? <laughs> yeah those um the, the size 12s that are in the 40s from from world war one those are nearly impossible to come by i mean i've seen a few like i believe i've only seen three okay um in that octagon shaped yep so they those something like that will obviously command um a, a pretty hefty price tag mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, just just because they, they are literally so hard to find. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so Stan, um, how long have you been collecting trench watches and World War One watches for? Like what, what got you started in well, what got you started into watches in general, but what got you started down this road? Because it's a very specialist and very niche road. If you think about it, military watches in general is probably considered quite niche in general, um, across the whole of the watch sphere. But, you know, to go down trench watches is a niche within a niche, you know what I mean? It's really narrow in terms of scope for collecting and availability. What got you um, into it? I, um, when I was growing up, my mother loved to go to uh, antiquing. Mm -hmm. uh, just, you know, if there's an antique shop on the side of the road, you know, we're getting out of the car. So I spent a lot of my time in antique stores, uh, there were always, I remember looking at the watches. Um, my family was heavy into watches. Mm -hmm. um, growing up, everyone had a nice piece, mm -hmm. uh, mostly Rolex. Um, so I kind of grew up in that environment. So I've always been around them, um, admired my stepfather's collection, my mother's collection, my father's collection. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, all my uncles always had a nice watch on. So when you kind of grow up with something like that, it sticks with you. Yeah, of course. Um, as for the trench watches, when I, how I got into all this, um, I had a great job uh, back in uh, 07, 08. I was vice president of sales for a uh, power equipment manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And that is when the housing market just sank like mm -hmm. a rock and the, and the pretty much there was a global recession in a way. Yep. Um, and I, I lost my job because we built uh, power equipment for the housing industry. Yep. So if nobody's buying or building houses, um, my, uh, my job became obsolete. Um, so I'm like, what am I going to do now? Um, and I just, I refuse to be the victim of another man's greed on wall street. So I'm, I'm not going to, you know, you know, live on uh, peanuts and ramen noodles, you know, <laughs> so I, uh, um, I took a hobby and turned it into a career. Yeah. Um, and with the antiquing background, um, I kind of already had an idea where I wanted to go. When I start something, I want to start from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And trench watches obviously represent the dawn of the American wristwatch industry. Mm -hmm. uh, the Swiss, uh, Omega, Galet, uh, we're doing it earlier, um, commercially sold watches, uh, early 1900s. Uh, the Americans really didn't get started until probably 1911 was the mm -hmm. very first men's wristwatch in the United States. It was called the New England Lever Cavour. And it was their marketing campaign was uh, directed at pilots, uh, golfers, outdoorsmen, uh, but they didn't last very long. And then um, the dollar watches came in, like your Ingersoll radio lights mm -hmm. um, around 1910 or 1911. But things really started heating up um, in 1913 when the Elgin National Watch Company released their first men's wristwatch. Um, and that's a pretty cool story. That happened. Uh, they released, uh, Elgin released their very first wrist, men's wristwatch at the third running of the Indianapolis 500 okay. in, yeah. in, in 1913. Um, those were the very first brand ambassadors. Um, some gentleman named Wild Bill Endicott. Um, oh, goodness. What was the other guy's name? I just saw his advertisement yesterday. Um, anyway, they, Elgin started taking full page ads out, um, in the trade magazines and it showed, you know, this guy in his, he's holding the steering wheel yeah. of his space tornado, uh, you know, indie car. Yeah. And there he had it, an Elgin, an Elgin, uh, men's sport watch on his wrist. And it did, it was, they didn't, even though the exact style of a trench watch was out before the war, you pretty much call all of those watches with those wire lugs trench watches yes of course yeah so um and i with my history fascination that's where i wanted to go there were no books available <clears throat> um if you go to one of the watch forums one guy would say one thing if you go to another one oh he doesn't know what the heck he's talking about this is this is what happened and um it turns out they were all wrong mm -hmm. um so i decided to uh, start from scratch um, yeah. and start researching, researching, researching. Because when these watches were brand new, they were a tool watch. Of course. They were a field watch. 
Um, they were meant for military uh, maneuvers. Obviously, you well know, uh, you're going to have to have that all timed very well. Yeah. Um, so that is what I wanted to concentrate on. Mm -hmm. um, so just through research, you know, when I'm restoring a watch, you know, is this the correct crown? Are these the correct hands for this dial? When did these hands come out? Because back then it was a tool. Now it's a collector's item. And if you get something with a wrong set of hands or a replacement crown on a trench watch from the 1930s, it just doesn't look right. <laughs> Obviously, uh, the styles are completely and utterly different. You're going to, you know, put a deco area crown on a World War One trench watch. Yeah. It's not gonna look I buy it because I have, you know, a plethora of yeah. original factory crowns, you know, that I can install on that in yeah. just a few minutes. And the value goes up by about 25, 30% with correct mm -hmm. factory crowns on them. Um, and the one guy that helped me out, his name was Jesse Hewing. When I was first mm -hmm. starting out, he went to the, uh, uh, to, to, I'm going to date myself a little bit here because the guy that helped me out uh, went to uh, went to the Boulevard watchmaking school. Okay. So this, yeah, he was he was an old timer, and he's like, "Listen, you're getting into the game kind of late. So what you're going to want to do is find one thing that really attracts you in 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 the field. Find a niche, just like you said earlier, and stick with it, and mm -hmm. only do that. That's yeah. why I pretty much 99.9% .9 of the time. Um, I'm, I'm working on trench watch or I'm selling a trench watch, writing a book about a trench watch. Uh, only the American stuff, though, not anything for, uh, yeah. from England, Swiss, Germany, um, J Japan. So that's pretty much how we got started. That's really cool. Really impressive. Um, I am um, obviously yeah, from my point of view, from when I did the research for trench watches in terms of World War One, and obviously in the British involvement then. So at the time, as you've rightly kind of alluded to before effectively World War One, wristwatches were predominantly worn by women. Firstly, you know, watches were a female uh, ladies accessory and pocket watches were for men. So obviously the advent effectively of war came around, you know, or the lead up to war and industry and like you said all these other things where men were having to do men and you know people were having to do stuff with their hands but know what the time is so flying aircraft sailing boats um driving cars all of that kind of stuff hence the use of these these watches or converting pocket watches into wrist watches while on world war one in terms of the british now since like my research and from my side of the house in terms of the british military um a officer would go to a jeweler's um, nine times out of 10, it would be either goldsmiths or mapping and web or whatever. And they would buy obviously what there was marketed as, like you said, a sealed dustproof, waterproof trench watch for use in the field. Now, obviously these watches were made obviously in Switzerland or wherever they were made. Um, and they would have either plain dials or they'd have dials um, hallmarked by the jeweler that sold them because obviously the movement houses were separate. Watches were probably marked majority of the time by the jeweler, uh, not the manufacturer. So is that the same then when it came to, like you said, these watches that were issued via like Elgin, via Waltham to the American forces? Was it a case of these soldiers and officers would go to a jeweler's and they would have to buy it on their own money, but, you know, as a part of a uniform grant? And they'd get the watch, which had like the, I've seen a few, like I said, with like Elgin USA, and it was like, you know, an eagle and some stars. And that's like the official branding for the 
issued watches or would they join the army or the military at whatever level they joined us and said well actually here is your watch here is your uniform and all that kind of stuff how did it work on the american side um that is one of the the bigger myths i dispelled um in the first book elgin trench watches the great war that came out in 2015 um for the most part the general consensus was that watches were not issued during World War I. Um, and I, I, that's one of the first things that I went after. Um, and I was able to find documentation that the United States Army was issuing watches as early as uh, 1913, perhaps mm -hmm. even 1911. Mm -hmm. um, and those would be the 1911 said that would have been an import watch. Yeah. Um, but they actually did do mill specs. Mm -hmm. uh, they did have standardization. Um, and it is an absolute 100% guaranteed fact the United States Armed Services did issue watches to soldiers, enlisted men, and officers. Yep. Now, the officers, uh, they'd get a little something a little bit nicer. They'd get like a, a, a 15 jewel watch was the standard issue for an officer. While, you know, your enlisted man um, would get a seven jewel movement. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's obviously even common across World War II. Again, like I said, my, my collecting history um, kind of like really goes back to World War II because uh, purely down to availability. But you look at the different timing specifications for certain watches you look at the aviation watches and like you said they had 15 jaw movements you know they'd be waterproof shockproof dustproof and when you look at the especially the american side you look at the ordnance core and the ordnance department watches and then some of them like you said would have lesser jewels so like seven or eight jewels and the cases would be slightly different construction but like you said they'd still meet a standardization the timings would oh, be yeah. between there whatever was, now that that was it wouldn't just be you know uh Okay, we're going to war. We want these. We're just going to buy everything yep. that, that we can. It, no, that didn't. That didn't work. There was the all watch purchases mm -hmm. um, during World War One for the United States Armed Forces, uh, down to from the Army down to the Coast Guard. Um, they had to be tested first, mm -hmm. and all of those watches were tested at the United States National Bureau of Standards. Okay. Um, the Bureau of Standards was enacted by the United States Congress. I believe it was it was either 1901 or 1905, um, and they were the the testing arm. They would test for heat. Um, they would test in you know frigid. They had these coolers that would go you know up to something like 200 degrees, and then down to uh, it was be like negative. 50 degrees don't mm -hmm. quote me I, that's i don't have that data in front of me right now but it was something close to that um you know they put 100 watches in there um heat them cool them then do a timing test on them 24 yeah. hours and see what the variations were and if that watch didn't pass the test um they'd send it back mm -hmm. uh to the supplier i mean so everything had to be approved everything had to be tested uh there were standards um, and all these things actually did happen. I touch on that lightly, I believe, in chapter five of my okay. latest book. Nice. A little bit of what the, the Signal Corps did um, 
because the signal core, once those watches got approved after testing, the signal core um, would give approval. Um, the supplier would sign it, not a contract with the United States Army or specifically the signal core. They would sign a contract with the United States War Department, yeah. today known as the Department of Defense. Yeah. Yeah, so that's similar um, to the, the the Ministry of Defense. They hold all the contracts, and obviously the watches meet a certain st standard testing even now. And obviously, clearly, modern technology, quartz movements, you know, they're pretty much always going to pass anyway, and then they get sent out to the various units. So that, you know, that process yeah, that, hasn't, that's hasn't changed there. That's where I had some trouble. I found, I've, I've tracked all the watches down to the quartermasters yeah. and to a few other supply depots. Uh, but where they went from there, um, that's probably going to take a, a few more years in the National Archives. Yeah, definitely, definitely. You know, like I can say from my experience of being in the military, you're like this. It's obviously, we all know that military equipment um, has issued markings, year markings and all that kind of stuff. But people sometimes forget, um, should we say, that, um, you know, just because a watch has an issue year of 2020 on it, for example, doesn't actually mean it was issued in 2020. It just means that it was made in 2020 and sent to the Ministry of Defence. It could sit on a store shelf for another seven years before they pull it off a shelf and give it to someone. You know, exactly. and also the other thing is, is I think collectors need to be reticent of this is, um, and I've said this all the way from my podcast, and it's probably like me beating a drum again, but just because a watch has got an issue marking on it also doesn't mean you know where it ended up or who signed for it because the markings are the same. It's just a serial number in a year. You know, the NSN numbers clearly denote um, service, country, type of equipment and the individual serial number and the year. That's all it is. You know, these watches aren't always going to go to special forces units pilots and all that kind of stuff i for example know a good friend of mine back in a previous unit of mine um he saw that i had an issued wristwatch on and he asked me where i got it from and i said i'll oh, go down to qm's um you know sweet talk them with a packet of biscuits and you see what you can get and he came back with a completely different watch to me and he actually got issued a pilot's chronograph and he went oh he didn't know what chronograph was, right? He turned around to me and goes, oh, Daniel, obviously you're into watches. He goes, "What? why is mine different to yours? And I turned around and said, well, you probably shouldn't have got that. I went, you should have got given the three-hand one that I've got, the field watch. And he went, oh, well, the only reason I got given that one was because the young storeman didn't know what to issue me. He said he opened the drawer. There was whatever watches were there. And he just said he picked up the first one. And he just signed over that one. And he, asked, he said, and he asked me, he went, should I keep it or give it back for the, your one? I'd keep it, mate, because that was better. <laughs> you know, so it's just an example. I think people, like I say, they get so caught up with this military issuing, you know, the, the, the markings on the cases, on the dials, that they forget. Actually, sometimes these watches are given to effectively the wrong trades, the wrong people, through no fault other than human, you know, human error, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean, believe it or not, they're... they're... Very, very few watches American made that were issued actually from World War One mm -hmm. um, have issue marks on them. I was going to ask um, you about that. Going back to like 1911, 1913, I found um, all of the military records that say who was to be issued a watch for each unit. Your mm -hmm. point, you know, your sergeant, uh, your your signalman, um, things like that. Um, but as for markings on the case back, I mean, I know exactly what watches they were using 
you know, from 1913 up to, you know, 1919, 1920. Yeah. Uh, but when you turn them over, there's no markings on the case. Mm -hmm. They didn't, the Americans didn't start doing that until uh, the Waltham de Pollier Field and Marine that actually has a yeah. USA stamp on it. And that does not stand for United States of America. That means United States Army. Yeah. Um, and then when a watch would go back uh, to the U.S. Army watchmaker uh, for service or a, uh, the U.S. Army kind of like to just do movement swaps because yep. they had plenty of good movements with dials, mm -hmm. with fresh loom on them on the shelf. So when a watch would break, more often than not, they just change the movement for something that's ready to yep. go on the shelf. Yep. Um, and so when the World War I watches started coming back in, um, then in like the 1920s, 1930s, um, a U.S. Army watchmaker would then uh, put some markings on the case back to see, you know, where it was issued, what depot it came from, and things like that. But for the most part, we didn't have the broad arrow uh, mm -hmm. uh, like you did on the other side of the pond during yeah. World War One. Yeah, we um, the broad arrow um, marking has been around since I think back to the um the norman period maybe um if i remember correctly like there's tudor cannons um on you know what is was the the mary rose which was king henry VIII's flagship there's cannons obviously all over uk from that period and you can see where the um artificers have actually put you know stamped in and, and engraved as, as it were the broad arrow markings right back to then which is really cool um it's interesting that you pulled up that you know the u.s army had watchmakers so i'm assuming they were either civilians that were brought in to support in like said through, through the supply element or you know or was it like with the british army where actually right up until i think the national service period we still had um one of the uh sub trades within the royal electrical mechanical engineers were responsible for the maintenance of what of timing devices effectively so was it was it serving soldiers who were responsible for it or was it like you said like a civilian department that was just kind of there um well they all were military personnel okay. mm -hmm. um and like say elgin perhaps yep. from elgin illinois those watches um i believe during world war one there were approximately two dozen uh, -huh. uh watchmakers from the elgin factory uh that enlisted and specifically, you know, they obviously wouldn't be in the trench. No. Uh, they'd be in a support position far yeah. back um, uh, from the from the battle lines. Uh, but they were set up in tents and they were making uh, Elgin National Watch nice. Company employees who were military. Yeah, yeah of course. Personnel. So um, and they just kind of stuck to themselves and they um, they did watch repairs in the field. Yeah, that's really that, cool. That, and like, that did happen, absolutely. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, when you it goes back to it, you know, these are the original tool watches. These are the original tool watches of the day. So, you know, you have to maintain them, you have to repair them. And like you said, you know, there would have been store shelves, replacement dials, hands, you know, cases, crystals, all of that kind of stuff. Because like you said, the idea is actually it's all about timing of military maneuvers it's the timing of that and that's the important bit it's not necessarily that hour hand was the hour hand that it left the factory with originally you need to get that watch back into action in order to time these military maneuvers exactly and the, yeah. the the watches um in the beginning 
they're called what's what's called as known as friction fit. Um, mm -hmm. When you look at the older trench watches, usually it's a three piece case um, yep. and you snap it together and yep. it has that really tight friction fit. That's how things started out. Um, and Denison and Borgel uh, kind of changed things with the semi-hermetic threaded cases mm -hmm. that did not have uh, uh, gaskets on them. It was just threaded cases, uh, no threaded crowns though. Um, so things did get better. The, mm -hmm. the, the semi-hermetic case was a superior design when compared to a friction fit. Of so, and, and the last non-waterproof watch that the United States military bought uh, was a semi-hermetic case designed especially for them that was made by the Illinois Watch Case Company. It was not available to the general public. So watches were in fact designed specifically for the United States military that you literally could not go down to a, a jeweler store. Um, and you, that's where you'd buy a watch back then. Yeah. It would not be available. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, and I also, the other point I just want to go back, again, rewind to the further bit that you were speaking about when, you know, these watches came back in to be serviced, then they were stamped after the war because that kind of process came in. What's, uh, I forgot to mention about this ATP that I've got on, it's got two issue markings on it. This watch was issued at the beginning of World War II, you know, approximately 1939, 1940, when the ATP contract was brought in. Um, and it's actually got a through and a new issue year because this watch was returned to stores held for a while and then reissued back in 1953 wow so so that's quite cool so you can see as well even on our side you know where you know things like you said you know effectively the military don't like throwing away things that work you know and they kept them for a rainy day and obviously oh yeah think I about mean, it you know without a doubt there are there's even examples of a few um, like the uh, like the Black Star Dial Elgin Trench watch that did feature a semi-hermetic case yep. in 1918, that served the United States Army in World War One and in World War Two. I mean, it's in a um, it's pictured in technical manual TM five seven five, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. uh, for field glasses and scientific instruments, something like that, that catalog was. And it was still being used, a, a 1918 watch in 1943. That's really cool, that, isn't it? I mean, really obviously, cool. there were shortages yes. on your side and on my side of the pond. Um, so they, they did keep the ones that work very well yep. um, in service due to shortages. Yeah, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me at all. Um, well, you talk about cases that were specifically designed for the American military. Um, I don't know if you've seen one, but I'll have to send you a photo uh, later after the podcast. But the current issued Pulsar field watch to the British Army, that case, from my research, is the only um, way that you can get that exact case from Pulsar is by getting the issued version. So oh, I don't even that yeah, yeah, so even now. You know, in some examples, you do have specific cases, even for modern military, which is quite interesting. So, oh yeah, there, there were certainly more than one. Uh, the LNI Watch Case Company made cases specifically for the military. Um, Joseph Faison Company did as well, and these were far different than uh, what the civilians yeah. uh, had available to them. These watches actually had black oxidized finishes on them. Mm -hmm. um, they had some of them had loom dots instead of luminized numbers. 
mm -hmm. uh, to lessen the brightness of the radium loom. Yeah. Uh, there were several reports of snipers being able to pick off um, our personnel from across no man's land due to the radium on their dials. Yeah. Um, so they did start at the very, very end of the war, start to address that issue um, and put less loom on the dials in some cases. They also put different color crystals mm -hmm. on them that would dim the brightness of that radium loom. So that's impressive. There's there's uh, so many different interesting stories. Yeah. Um, there was so many. I mean, the thing that I like the World War One watches more than the World War Two. In World War Two, standardization really hit. I mean, look at the Dirty Dozen. There are. Yeah. It's all generally a a a similar looking watch. Yeah. Same thing with the the Hamilton, the Elgin, the Boulevard, the Waltham uh all of those you know a11s a17s a15s yep. they all had that very very similar look exact same dial and then the the manufacturer's name was blacked out so yep. unless you look at it from the side you, you know the side view uh you you wouldn't even know who made it yeah, uh, yeah just by looking a straight on view of it so yeah, it's impressive, isn't it? Really, like you said, that standardization. And like you said, you lose a little bit of character, should we say, in some yeah, of the... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the yeah. World War I watches, they, they did it with a little bit more style, a little bit yeah. more panache. Uh, you know, there were octagon, there were cushion cases, uh, there were round, uh, six-sided cases, eight-sided mm -hmm. cases, um, some flimsy, pretty thin ones that obviously were civilian use only. Uh, but one of the coolest things I, I, I like about them is instead of the OR, OR, the ordinance marking on the back, a lot of times the most popular case back inscription I've seen on all World War I watches, um, it starts off from mother. Yeah. I know mothers telling their sons to say their prayers at night, come home to me safely come back yeah. home to your family safely. We'll be waiting for you. Mm -hmm. But uh, mother was the most popular case back in Spain, yeah, yeah. believe it or not. Yeah, that, that, I don't doubt it. You know, like I said, at the end of the day, that kind of brings back the human element to all of this, doesn't it? You know, people forget that, you know, it, we'll talk about tool watches, we'll talk about the military, we'll talk about issue kit, but actually, you know, these these tools gained a personality of their own just through who they were given to or issued to or bought for, you know, and actually each individual soldier had a unique experience of their time as well, you know, so that doesn't surprise me that they were engraved for that. Um, yeah. In terms of then, um, firstly, I've got to ask you, what is your favorite trench watch in your collection at the moment? Because I know you have a few. Um, um Probably... Well, the, the Depoyer waterproof would be the obvious answer, mm -hmm. but when it comes to style, uh, the 1918 uh, Waltham Admiral Evans, that was the octagon shape trench watch with the flared lugs uh, that kind of go out in a rectangle and smooth back around at the, at the bottom of the lug. Uh, when it comes to style, um, that was one hell of a watch. Yeah. Those, yes. uh, when I get one of those, um, I have a wait list about three or four guys deep for a, <laughs> for an Admiral Evans with swivel lugs. So you never even see that stuff for sale on my webpage. I just, you know, make a phone call. Hey, yeah, I finally got, got one. And, and I'm a nice guy. I do actually take them in order. People try to offer me more. 
hey, put me to the front of the list for an extra 250. I'm like, no, 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 this guy's been waiting a couple of years. He's he's in the queue first. So, yeah. but if he has 24 hours to decide if he takes a pass, then the next guy on the list gets a phone call. So nice. But nice. I, I'd say the Admiral Evans with swivel logs would be my favorite. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so we're going to talk about your book now. Um, sure. Because obviously it dispels a myth. And we mentioned the, the company earlier because obviously you grew up around that company. Um, but let's talk about the uncomfortable truth about, you know, the world's first waterproof watch. Yeah, that was, um, I, I jumped on that subject matter really uh, right at the beginning when I started mm -hmm. doing all this. Um, and I'm like, a, a waterproof watch made in America? The first time I saw a Depoye advertisement, I was like, wait, 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 wait. What? I've always been under the impression that Rolex was the world's first waterproof watch. I mean, and this was, you know, just through, you know, hearing my, my, my dad or my uncles or my stepfather talking. Um, it, it, it wasn't anything that I read. That's just something that, that was kind of... Com Common knowledge. Yeah, common common knowledge. Um, and when I then when I saw this, you know, 1918 Depoye ad that said their watch was waterproof, I was, I'm like, all right, something's not adding up here. Um, so I, I started, took a deep dive into the Depoye stuff. Um, yeah. He obviously didn't start off making waterproof watches. He made regular friction fit, uh, three-piece case watches for the most part. Um, but yeah, Rolex, they, it's first off, I don't have any beef with them. Mm -hmm. uh, whatever happened, you know, 97 years ago, now we're in 2023. Um, I'm not going to fault Rolex marketing or the Rolex CEO. Mm -hmm. Um, chances are in my experience, people don't know their own, the, the, the history of their own companies, of their own departments. Um, and it, it, it truly was unfortunate that Hans Wilsdorf made some claims of the most, uh, the most triumphant, the, what, what exactly was it? Uh, the greatest triumph in watchmaking on mm -hmm. the uh, front page of London's Daily Mail on November 24th, 1927, because um, it, it simply was not true. Um, it's, it, it's, it's, I'm not, I'm honestly not trying to seem cynical, but when you, when you look at all of the evidence, I mean, you, you've obviously read all the military documents in the book um, and the sworn court testimony. I mean, this waterproof watch was done at the highest levels of the United States military. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure you saw the signature of more than a couple of generals in some of yep. those military documents. Mm -hmm. um, it was, I mean, and there was, this was a process. All of this had to be approved, tested. These people, you know, through the Bureau of Standards, through a physical science laboratory, um, using actual scientific methods to test these watches to see if they could do what they could do. And all of these things happened eight years before, you know, Rolex came out with the Oyster in 1926. I mean, Depoye had already sold 10,000 field and marine watches to the United States War Department before Rolex even put out the 1922 submarine yeah. with a screw down crown. Rolex was still using case inside of a case technology. 
I mean, that was just antiquated in mm-hmm. 1922. And, you know, Rolex knew about Depoyer's waterproof watch design. There's, there's just no denying it. There are the fishbowl advertisements that yeah. Rolex all use the word borrowed. Mm-hmm. And that was Charles, the fish, the watch in the fishbowl was Charles, was in fact Charles Depoyer's registered trademark. Um, and I have to say, not, I like the fact that you used it on the front cover. I think it's one of the coolest advertisements. Yes. To me, like it, it tells you obviously exactly what the watch is. It's a waterproof watch, but I just think it does it in such a fun, kind of unique, kind of, you know, a little bit. I'm not taking myself too seriously because it's in a fishbowl. You know, I just think it's just a really fun way of showing it, you know. Sure, sure. I mean, obviously you saw the original advertisements. Yep. They were all black and white, but I had, yep. you know, the graphics guy, you know, yep. do a really cool job on colorizing the fish and the yeah, watch yeah. band and all that stuff. And then then you get into the the other advertisements where you know, Rolex was claiming to, you know, when they flew over Mount Everest in what, 1933. Yeah. Basically for the 1933, you know, Rolex Oyster Mount Everest advertisements, that is a direct kick. You know, they took that directly from the Depo- from the Waltham Depoyer Field and Marine advertisements. Did you see all those circles I made? Yeah. On there? I mean, it's, it's copy, click and paste advertising. Uh, one other interviewer called it. Um, and then in the early 1930s, Rolex kind of did themselves in that they actually did know, because it says right there in one of their advertisements, they make a reference to a design feature of the Walton Depoyer Field and Marine, the asbestos heat insulating desk. Yeah. No other watch ever had a heat insulating asbestos disc that either that was covered by a piece yeah. of sterling silver or 14 karat gold. Mm-hmm. So Rolex and Hans Wilsdorf absolutely positively knew about um, uh, Depoyer's waterproof watch. I mean, there's just, you, you, you can't say that they didn't with a straight face. No, no. I mean, no, you, just, you just can't. So, but Charles Depoyer had gone out of business mm-hmm. uh, by that time. He got into some financial trouble. It's not that the watch failed, no, um, he, yeah, it's more on a personal level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, it had more, there was, I mean, I'm not a, you know, I never, I dipped into the, that part of the story a bit, but if I was going to include that, the book would have been 200 extra pages <laughs> and gone over the four pound threshold shipping limit for overseas, yeah. which would have doubled the shipping costs. Yeah. So there were a few reasons that I didn't put, you know, all that in there, or the book would be big as a phone book. <laughs> um, it, it's just, um, I'm glad I set the record straight on yeah. this because one should not claim to have done something that one didn't in fact do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I understand, you know, hey, everything is goes to marketing and sales and moving product off the shelves. That's, that's the word. We live in a capitalist society and that's the way the world goes. Um, but to just try to write Charles Depoyer out of history um it, that's it's it's pretty bad in my yeah opinion. no i agree i agree and, and like you said it's it, it's a, it's also like you said it's an important bit of history because 
you know, I've got friends who don't understand why I collect watches. You know, they just think it's a common thing. Everyone has a watch, be an Apple watch, a Garmin or whatever watch you decide to wear. It's just a common thing that you see in everyday life. But you forget, don't you, that actually having a waterproof watch, you know, like this, the standard, you know, setting of like 100 meter water resistance now is pretty common across all watches. That technology that we have now in watches across every watch, pretty much, oh. like you said, wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for individuals like Charles de Paulier doing what they yeah, did I mean, back and, in the day and and it even says it's in my book several times these watches were tested under pressure mm-hmm. and as soon as I saw that I'm like I honestly I, I spent a couple of years years mm-hmm. trying to find the document that actually says to what pressure it was tested mm-hmm. at yeah. and all it ever said that it was tested under pressure Okay. Um, I, I couldn't find the exact amount or what atmosphere because obviously an atmosphere chart didn't exist it is, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in 1918 to test watches for, you know, for different atmospheres. Um, but what, it was. What do you think? Obviously, you know, you've done all the research, you've written all the books, you know, you, you live and breathe this kind of stuff. If you were to hazard a guess you know, at what pressure you think those watches were tested to, what would you say? You know, given the technology of the day, you know what I mean? It's, I know it's probably never I mean, going to be the comparable to modern. Gonna, the major thing that's going to separate Depoye's watch from, from, if you want to compare it to the, to the, to the 26 Oyster was the double clenched bezel. Mm-hmm. His, his, the way that he secured uh, the crystal in the watch yeah. was completely and utterly different. It would grab from the top yeah. And from the bottom um, of the crystal. Uh, so it would be sealed at the top and the bottom of the crystal. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Rolex Oyster did not do that. It wasn't mm-hmm. sealed at the top. It was only sealed. I believe that was a pressure fit. Mm-hmm. Um, it could have had a gasket on it. I, I can't remember for sure when they added that feature or the original 26 Oysters had that on there. But all of the technology that is on the Rolex the, the 26 oyster it's already on the depoye from eight years yeah. earlier mm-hmm. so um and it's this is this story is really starting to gain traction through uh you know nice people like yourself that want to give mm-hmm. me uh you know some time to talk about it but the the main thing that made me write this book believe it or not was somebody really angered me one day um, <laughs> and it was Uh, It was one of the world's most famous auction houses, uh, Christie's Auction House Mm -hmm. um, in New York City. They they published an article on their webpage back in 2015 that states, but, and I'm quoting, but without question, Rolex created the world's first waterproof watch. And that is, that just, that's just so untrue. Um, That is just not how history happened. And as far as I knew, people like Christie's are not supposed to get, you know, history wrong, the history of a company wrong, the provenance of an item wrong. I mean, that's that's what gives everything value. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. is the provenance. I mean, that's mm-hmm. or, you know, I wouldn't we wouldn't be sitting here today. So and then uh, there's a lot of others that are that that. You read articles constantly. Every time there's a, an article about history of dive watches, and we've all read 20 or 30 of them, it always cites the Rolex Oyster. And over the years, I've already known all this, even before I found 
uh, those last few military documents, my mind was made up. This, this all really happened. Mm -hmm. Um, and that when they go on to just, to just literally, and I mean, literally write Depoyer out of history, and you try to talk to them about this, your comments get deleted. Nobody returns your phone calls. Nobody returns your emails. I mean, it just seems like the elite of the watch industry media doesn't want to give credit to the, to the man that actually, you know, did the work. And Hans Wilsdorf wrote checks. He didn't mm -hmm. design watch cases. He didn't design movements. He wrote checks. He was a businessman. He was not a case designer or a watchmaker. Um, mm -hmm. And through his model, he did very well. Um, Depoye actually, you know, designed these cases. He manufactured these cases. So for, I'm just glad that the record is finally being set straight. Yep. Uh, this, this story is going to be in some uh, pretty big venues. Uh, mm -hmm. In the upcoming year, in the in the next few months, uh, several uh, magazine articles, you know, I, and I, I don't really fault the watch industry media. I mean, they have to put food on their tables, yeah. but they are basically the mouthpiece of the watch manufacturers. They, you know, they get sent watches for review all the time, and if perhaps you don't, you write something that is very truthful um, in one of these articles that Rolex might not like, you might lose access. You might not be reviewing watches for them for much longer. You might not get invited to a cocktail party. You might not get invited to an event where watch media is going to be there. And you might not get a invitation to a Rolex's 100 year anniversary party of the 26 Oyster. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know exactly how they're gonna handle that or move forward from this point still trying to claim that they're the world's first waterproof watch when, and it's not me saying it, that they weren't. It's the United States government saying it. <laughs> I mean, the, how many documents were in there that said waterproof watch, waterproof watch, waterproof watch, you know, Dubois watch case company, the contract, the actual mill spec for the waterproof watch. And if they're going to try to, well, come back and say, well, oh, we were the, the first non-military waterproof watch. Well, you got you there too, because Charles Depoye did in fact sell these watches to, to, the, to the general public. You mm -hmm. can go into a store to an authorized a you know Depoye AD from New York to California, you know Texas up to Chicago, and buy one of these waterproof watches. So I mean, they were they're just there's not too many like too many legs left to stand on mm -hmm. because. Uh, Depoye did all of this eight years beforehand. <laughs> did you like that picture of General Pershing? Yeah, it was congratulating cool. the United States, uh, yeah. the, the chief test pilot of the United States Air Service when he went up to what was it, 36,140 feet. Um, the guy almost got killed, but his yeah. watch is just before he hit the ground out of that nosedive. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what? His watch was still keeping perfect yeah. time in negative 67 degree temperatures yeah so, i i can tell you that i would not be keeping good time in negative 67 degree temperatures <laughs> like, you know <laughs> you know what i mean like it's just one of those i'm pretty sure even like 
Garmin, which is obviously considered like one of them, you know, the pinnacle really in 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 military kind of timing watch devices now, really, because you know what they can do. I'm pretty sure they're not even tested down to negative sixty seven. To be perfectly honest, you know, I'm pretty no, sure. No, I'm pretty no. sure. L, I'm pretty sure LCD screens actually freeze um, at that kind of temperature. So you know, it's I mean, and believe me, this, and this he did this in a in an open cockpit airplane. Yeah. 36,000 feet in an open cockpit plane. That is, um, that had to be miserable uh, yeah. for, for the duration of that flight. But, you know, when he got back down to the ground um, and he set the new world record while wearing a Waltham Depoye Field and Marine, General Pershing, General of the Armies, was there to congratulate him yeah. uh, for, for, his, uh, for his accomplishment. Yeah. I mean, so this is, this is no big secret. It is well known in American history. People might have forgotten it on the other side of the pond and in Switzerland, um, but these are the undeniable facts. I mean, if you're not going to believe Charles, I mean, that's the, the coolest thing about this story and the book is when you read those, those military documents, when I start lining all of them up in chronographical order, um, you can see the need for this watch. They, they literally say in the beginning of that chapter, watches are failing in the field. This is not going to work. We're going to switch everything over. And they decided to buy uh, Depoye's watch two days before World War I ended. So yeah. if, the, if the war would have lasted another six months or a year, yeah, Depoye would have been the main watch supplier for all branches of the United States Armed Forces. Yeah. And you probably wouldn't even know who Rolex is today. <laughs> so it's it's just a, it's just was just a weird turn of events on uh, on all of this happened. And this is not being floated. You read it for yourself. These are official United States government documents making these statements. That's not me. That's the United States yeah, government yeah. saying. Well, it's history, like you said. You know, you've just you've just shone a light on like you said the, yeah. those documents and that and that that piece of history which like you said is has been forgotten to an extent yeah. i mean you know that's and, what you've done. and in these documents it's literally a first-hand account when you read those interdepartmental letters uh between the united states uh, uh army office signal corps officers i mean it's literally the watches are failing we're going to go with this depoye watch we're going, to, we're going to need to do a mill spec now. And then in Charles Depoye's sworn court testimony, where he put his hand on the good book and swore to tell the truth, which is as good as signing, uh, you know, an affidavit that you are telling the truth, uh, which would be more popular today. I mean, he gives his firsthand account of how he worked with Lieutenant Colonel Mauborn, how they didn't like the original crown design. It stuck up. It kept getting caught in their garment sleeves, or it would—it mm -hmm. was, you know, pinching them in the back of the wrist. Mm -hmm. And the, the the design changes that they wanted that Charles Depoye, you know, made happen, and he was responsible for the very first waterproof mill spec. I mean, and the mill spec, the actual written out what it's supposed to be, it's in Charles Depoye's testimony, and it is also corroborated word for word um, in the U.S. Army documents. I mean, so this none of this is being floated. These are genuine documents that anyone can go and look up. And if you noticed, I even told people where to find them, even the file numbers, the catalog yep. numbers, um, you know, just so they can go and look for themselves. If, if, yeah, of course. Yeah, so it's, it's all about being, being transparent, all isn't it? Yeah, and it's all like you said, it's about being transparent and, you know, 
you know education isn't it at the end of the day this is educating people to an element of watch history and horology that like you said for want of a better expression and no pun intended you know over time has, has been forgotten you know um but no i i really enjoyed skimming through the book and, and seeing you know the pertinent points that we've just spoken about then uh in terms of the books and obviously your battle rhythm for want of expression you know, your forecast of events you know where I mean I know the book's on sale now and obviously they can order it for your website on you know LRF Antique Watches and I'll put the link in the show notes uh, oh, and I cool. encourage everyone to obviously come and follow you and reach out to you because obviously that's how I reached out to you via Instagram um, but where for example if you're doing I don't know if you will do this or, or if I'm just gonna you know hopefully you know Put, put you hopefully not put you into an awkward position where people will now demand it after listening to the uh, podcast but you know if you're doing like what book events or sales events or like you know book signings you know what is the plan for the book is it just going to be an online sale or will you actually turn up to you know uh watch events you know such as oh, like yeah. the, I'll, the, I'll, the I always go to the watch events um mm-hmm. I usually I don't sit there and you know sit at a uh, at a table and sell watches and books all day usually when I go to watch show I'm there to buy Yep. Um, um, I'm looking for watches to restore good candidates uh, that just, you know, that I can see being nicely, fully restored, putting back to 100% correct. Um, I was in Switzerland earlier this year and I gave my first lecture on this subject. Mm-hmm. Um, we went back to uh, Mendrisio, Switzerland, which is mm-hmm. it's about 30 kilometers north of uh, Milan, Italy, uh, in the far south. <laughs> And they asked me to uh, come over and uh, give a lecture. Um, so I, I've already started lecturing mm-hmm. on the original Waltham de Pellier Field and Marines. Um, then I'm, I'm kind of heavily involved in, um, uh, basically I am Waltham's historian um, okay. right yep. now. I've seen that. I don't, I don't actually work for Waltham or Watch Angels who is making the new field and Marines. Yep, which I've um, also seen. Yeah, um, basically, we just, we have an arrangement, we do some, you know, uh, you know, cross marketing, I help them out, they help me out, because obviously, our goals are the same, Mm -hmm. uh, to get the truth out there, um, about how this technology was really actually developed. Um, So they, they, uh, they asked me to start, uh, you know, just writing down some historical facts for them, then it turned into uh well can you turn it into a script mm-hmm. and i'm like well i've never written a script before yeah so but I'll, I'll give it a shot um and then it turned into well do, do you want to just uh star in these promotional videos that we're yeah, doing yeah i've seen i was like those. wow i'm like yeah. I, I don't know about all that uh but they uh because I, I mean i write books yeah. um I'm, I'm usually not in front of the camera i'm you know behind it so to speak uh, but th- that was a really fun, uh, that was, that was a lot of fun, yeah. uh, filming those videos, especially when we went to, uh, the museum of the American GI. Yep. Um, and that's actually happens to be right here in Texas, about two hours Northwest of me, not even, mm-hmm. it's about an hour. Um, they built a, uh, a world war one trench warfare complex mm-hmm. on the back. They have a very large property, um, and they actually built two sides, two lines mm-hmm. of trenches with, with a no man's land in the middle of it. Um, and when they do battle reenactments, they actually have uh, several World War I vehicles. They even have a World War I uh, Renault tank. 
that's fully that's restored cool. yeah, that's that they cool. bring out of the museum and bring back yeah. to the field, you know, when it shoots blanks. I yeah. mean, it's, it's, and then they have, you know, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the German troops, the, you know, the allied forces and they all, you know, go over the top and, you know, have a, have a battle in the middle mm -hmm. of this big field. It's, it's a uh, pretty cool. That's where we filmed the promotional video. Um, those people are very nice. If you're ever in the area, go to the Museum of the American GI in College Station, Texas. That's really cool. I'll have to remember that if I ever get sent over to uh, Texas for work. Um, I do want to come across, um, not just for work, but I do want to come across to America anyway. And I've always said wherever I end up, I will uh, definitely take in some uh, obviously geeky watch uh, history. So I'll have to remember that one. Oh, definitely... plenty of that. Most of it's on the East Coast, though. Yeah, like the like the National Watch Museum, uh, the Histor the Historical Society of, I'm sorry, the Horological Society of New York. Mm -hmm. um, they have a really cool space now with a very big library that all of my books are in now too. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, no, I'd have to come over. Um, and if I ended up in Texas, I'd definitely let you know because obviously I'd love to meet up and talk all things watches. I'd even bring some of my military ones over for you to have a look at. Oh, sure. Um, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? Um, so Stan, in terms of LRF then, obviously, because I, I treat LRF antique watches as a slightly separate entity to obviously yourself and then the books, you know, um, obviously people can follow you. You've hinted obviously that you do watch restoration and, you know, you source old um trench watches and stuff like that how can you know if people want to do that is it a simple process as literally dropping you in a, an email is that or do you have to kind of like oh yeah you, can contact me. you know there's a contact form right on my webpage. tell mm -hmm. me what you're looking for if you have a watch you know world war one watch that you want to have uh you know restored um mm -hmm. restoring great grandpapa's watch um i do a lot of those Mm -hmm. uh, I'll also do the research if it was lucky enough to have a case back inscription. Um, long as there's a long as it, the name is not John Smith, yeah. Um, chances are I'll be able to find him. Um, if even if it's a, a, a pretty common name, long mm -hmm. as I have the town where he was from, yeah. Because uh, obviously every soldier had to go over on yep. a boat. Yep. Um, and the uh, the transport records are pretty meticulous okay. um, for how everyone got over there. And even though the military records might be lost, the transport records are not. And mm -hmm. it gives a soldier is his name, his rank, um, contact in case of death um, or injury, um, and the hometown that he was from, and That's what impressive. unit he was with. So That's these really guys impressive. are pretty. Yes, yes, they're. Um, it, it wasn't easy starting all of that, but people really appreciate it when I do the in-depth, mm -hmm. you know, the restoration of the watch and the in-depth history of where your relative, you know, served. What did he do? What was his job? Was he a cook? Was he, you know, uh, uh, in our in the artillery? Was it in the, in the was he in the air service? Mm -hmm. um, there's there's a million stories to be told um, about these veterans, and that is my absolute favorite thing to do. Is yep. to tell the stories of these of these brave, and it's it wasn't just the men; it was the women as well, mm -hmm. uh, the the uh, the army nurses, yep. the field hospitals that were all over France. Those women put themselves directly into harm's way by volunteering. Um, shells did, in fact, you know, hit some hit yeah, some 
very close to these base hospitals. Plus, there was the Spanish flu, yep. um, among many other you know, ways you can get killed in a theater of war. And these women served there as well. I've restored several women's watches. That's really cool. Um, basically, it was the same as the men's watch. They just, you know, had a different engraving on the back where it said that, you know, what base hospital they worked mm -hmm. at, things That's like really that. That's really cool. But it was men and women that, yeah. that helped win that war to uh, ensure our freedoms. Yeah. And I like to honor those men every given chance I get. Yeah. And like you said, it brings that story alive, doesn't it? And the fact that, you know, you're doing it through effectively restoring a very tangible bit of history for that family as well. And I think that's a really cool service effectively that, that you offer the and you put in that dedication to, you know, give the extra bit of information, which they may or may not have known. You know, like I said, a lot of people in my experience, you know, like I said, I'm for, I say I'm unfortunate. Oh, yeah. In my experience, I've got uh, a, a large military family I know quite a lot of the background of that but I also know you know from colleagues of mine who say or claim that they were the first you know they're the, they're the first person to serve in their family what they actually mean is they're the first person to serve in their family since the war because they don't know the records of where they did and you know I think some of them you know I've come across some who are desperate really to find out because they're just interested you know and I think sure. that's really cool for you you know to go that extra the mile as it were to do yeah, that that's 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 what I'm really looking forward to once all the business with the late with my, with my latest book dies down a bit um I just want I there's not too many watches for sale on my webpage right mm -hmm. now I think there's two or three um writing a book obviously a book that is 341 pages um, takes quite a while yeah, of course um, very time consuming so i've been been doing too much watchmaking lately um but i'm really looking forward to uh get, getting back in there getting into the shop every day you know at 7 a.m yeah. um immediately doing timing tests um and and restoring these pieces of uh, of american treasure so yeah. the gen next generation can learn um, and enjoy, collect. A lot of the, um, several watches of mine are in museums now. Mm -hmm. um, so trust, you get a watch from me, the parts are correct. Cool. There is no, you know, you're not gonna find a movement from 1928 um, when you pop open that case back. Um, yeah. Everything is serial number, correct? Fantastic. Exactly the way they should be, they were new. That's really you know, cool. Or I leave, or I only do, you know, depending on what they want, uh, I leave cosmetically everything alone. Yeah. Um, there are your purists. Don't touch a thing. Don't even wipe off the crystal. I'll just do mechanical repairs on the movement mm -hmm. um, and leave everything else as found. Even yeah. leave the dirt on the outside of the case. Yeah. So it, it just depends. Of course. Sometimes there's so a restoration is so far gone. You 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 are literally left with the only option to do a 100% restoration on the uh -huh. watch. Of course. You know, the lug might be broken up. You got a laser weld something, and then it's just not going to look right. Mm -hmm. um, or the case is damaged. Um, when you do that type of work, obviously, if you do one corner, you have, you have to, to do, do it. the whole rest of the watch as well, too. So that's why you'll see some watches that look brand new mm -hmm. um, on my Instagram. And while others, um, you know, it looks like it just, you know, came out of a ditch. But yeah. they look cool as hell. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They've it's developed, just, like I said, they've developed nice their own. Mix. Yeah, that's really cool. Like I said, they've either developed their own personality or, like you said, you 
in the case where you have to do 100% restoration, you also get to show that family, that owner, actually how that watch probably would have looked 100 years ago, you know, to oh, that exactly. original family member. And I think that's also quite a cool thing if they go down that route. Um, oh, in- yeah. Even, even when I'm, like, re-looming dials and hands, um, I don't use – I use – modern loom but i mix up my own secret yep. recipe um because loom wasn't white back no. then loom was a depending on who made it yep. and they would mix up a different batch every day so there was a slight color variation but it pretty much all was um a brownish color when it was brand new yeah so i i, I i've got it took me several years to perfect that 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 perfect tint of brownish tannish in the in the new loom and it still mm-hmm. glows it still yeah. glows in the dark even after i tint it you know that and, dark brown color so yeah, yeah and it's and it's also not radioactive which is always good yes yes very safe modern phosphorus based material so no worry of radiation no fantastic <laughs> fantastic in terms of the average so i mean i know you've been concentrating your book but in terms of say like the average year then through lrf antique watches how many restorations would you potentially do every year you know on average have you done kind of thing just you know, so to give me and my audience a bit of a, an understanding of how you know the time it takes for you to do these but also like the amount of people who have these watches and send them to you because you know you are the point of contact to do it you know um i've i've probably restored uh over it's over two thousand now okay um that were you know sold on uh my on my webpage or on ebay or some other platform over the years um but i, I several years ago i upgraded some equipment Yep. So I can do uh, watch do so I can do four watch movements at once now. Okay. Um, so it's not just I'm not just ever working on one project. I'll do several of them um, yep. at a time. Yep. Um, and obviously keep very specific notes. What what needs to be done to this? What needs to be different part? You know, uh, keep the parts in different bins, but all on yep. the same table because I'm I'm basically I'm working on the same thing four times in a row. Yeah. So in the beginning, there was a lot more available 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, eBay, you could go and get a, uh, you know, a junk trench watch for 50 bucks. <laughs> um, that is not the case today. No. Even something that's, you know, junk that needs total restoration that has a broken lug, a rusted movement, wrong crown, wrong hands on the dial is, you know, going for two or three hundred dollars now these days. Um, and there's a lot less out there. So the, the amount of watches I'm doing has gone down. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, in that, I was able to find just a, almost, I've, I'd say that I have found 98 to 99% of the military watches made by the Americans in World War I at this point. That's cool. And they, they, now they're all documented in those three books with a few exceptions where even I haven't found one yet. But there's, I'd say there's less than five that I'm still looking for. It's probably more like four mm-hmm. um, until I have, uh, think I might have found all of them. But there's still a, a few more to go yet. Nice. 
Nice. Well, I hope that you do find them all and get to experience, you know, um, handling all of the, basically all the versions of those watches, because obviously, you know, you're clearly incredibly passionate about them. And, you know, you know, it'd be, like I said, wonderful to kind of tick all of them off, you know. And, and, like, like my mentor, Jesse, uh, Jesse Hewig said, just find one thing and be very, very, very good at yeah. it. Yeah. Um, that's why I haven't got a lot of people ask, why don't you ever sell Swiss? Why don't you ever sell German or English? I mean, I'm. I've written three books and I'm still not done studying yeah. the American side of, of, of that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's why I only do the American stuff. Parts are abundant. Um, cases, not so much anymore these days, but parts are still abundant. Um, so I just found one thing, got really, really good at it. Uh, at least I, I think I'm pretty good at it. Um, w- between the, the actual watchmaking, the restoration work, the research work um, mm-hmm. on the original owners and writing the books. I'm kind of uh, I'm kind of an all-in-one uh, yeah. guy, and, I, and I'm really glad that I only stuck, you know, to World War One for the most part and the American-made watches. Yeah, because yeah. it's I'm, I probably still have another decade to go before I'd uh, have the audacity to say that I've seen it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, maybe I can interview you in a, in a decade and you can let yeah, me know. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe I'll have seen it all by then, but uh, we'll see what happens. But that's why you got to go to the watch shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Know what's gonna, exactly. What's going to pop up. Exactly. Or that. I might be there giving a lecture, you know, in yeah. the near future. So, yeah, that'd be cool. Like I said, if you ever, you know, I said the invite as well as if you ever this side, again, particularly in England, obviously, please let me know. I'd love to meet up with you and, you know, or, or you know, yeah, I've been meaning to get to the London Watch Fair for several years. I just, <laughs> uh, my uh, life gets in the way sometimes. I've been, I've been yeah. to Europe many, many times. Yeah. Uh, but I have not been, uh, been, have not been to the London Watch Fair yet, though. Cool. Well, I've, um, I actually do have a group who would be very interested um, in having, well, basically being put into contact with you because of the kind of military uh or, or so effectively it, it's called the military watch society so effectively that's what they look at um we can speak off air at the end of this at the end of this uh this podcast you know just to give you a bit of an overview but i'd love to put you in touch with their founder because i think your passion you know your books um the the stuff that you've brought out and the history of obviously from the american side um all of this it'd be really of interest to him and i think it'd be definitely something that he would entertain and in having you um you know at some point where permitting you know either give an online kind of chat or you know if you were over you know and you tied it in with another kind of trip or whatever so i'll definitely do that we can talk at the end of this um, after Um, this recording I think I'm going to be in Switzerland again this year, uh, mm-hmm. later on this year, uh, probably a, eh, probably June or July. Okay. Uh, wouldn't be that big of a deal to, uh, to just, yeah. uh, you know, pop into London and say hello. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like I said, we'll, uh, we'll have a chat about it after the, the podcast. Cause like I said, I wouldn't want to, <laughs> I would hold you to it because obviously this, this episode, like I like to think would stay on the air forever. So there you go. Um, Stan, um, I think we're reaching the end of the episode now, you know, we've covered, sure. We've covered the book, we've covered yourself, we've covered LRF. Um, is there anything pressing that you feel that you need to say to round out this at this portion of the episode? I mean, if if you're if you're talking about like a Depoye watch, um, 
and we touched on this earlier, getting the originals is, is unless you know somebody that has one, chances are you're not going to be able to get one of the original <laughs> Waltham Depoyer Field and Marines. Um, but Waltham and Watch Angels are, they brought a, a bunch of these watches back. They mm -hmm. made several different references, uh, uh, two different case diameters so far. Uh, the one I'm wearing today is a 41 millimeter uh, three hand. They are also making a 43 millimeter dual time. Mm -hmm. um, six or eight different dial colors. Uh, you can get them PVD case finished. Uh, you can get the even better DLC, the diamond-like uh, carbon coating on them. <coughs> uh, they and we uh, we brought back the thermo, yep. uh, which is being released in I believe it's June. Uh, yeah, it is 2023 already. So later yep. on this year, in about six months, um, and they already all sold out. All the thermos sold out in, I believe it was about 45 hours. Nice. Uh, so I think that's why I'm going to go back to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to see if uh, Mr. Uh, Guido Benedini, the CEO at Watch Angels over there, if he'll let me come on over and assemble my very own thermo. That'd be cool. Um, yes, yes. And then, uh, you know, go back to, uh, go over to England or go over to Munich for a Hofbrauhaus big pint. You know? Yeah. No, oh, yeah. nice. that'd be a good trip, though. Definitely a good trip. Yeah, um, yeah I'll, I'll put Watch Angels into um, the show notes as well. I've followed Watch Angels. In fact, the, the, the gentleman that I told you earlier about who I gifted a Waltham watch, I think it was a late 20s one now, coming to think of it. Um, uh -huh. He was the one who actually put me onto Watch Angels first as well. So he was oh, showing really? me, yeah, he was showing me um, obviously the modern iterations um, last year um and I've, i have been tracking it so obviously through watch angels i found you um and obviously you know now obviously it's a yeah, continuation I, I of that watch angels has since the inception a couple of years ago um i believe they have five different uh uh designers that they're actually mm -hmm. making the watches for now um and i believe the waltham field and marine is the most popular yeah um They've, they've sold more of those than than any of the others <laughs> yeah yeah i think they're really cool looking watches i think for me personally because i'm a history nerd uh, and i do like to be as close to the original as possible with reissues it would be really cool to potentially see them in or closer to the original sizes just because you can you know i think that's you know when it comes to history when it comes to reissues i think if you're going to do it do it right admittedly Obviously, it's not going to be to everyone's taste having a 31 mil watch, but I think, you know, where possible, try and have a go. Oh, I mean, and you know, Watch Angels, they really trusted me, mm -hmm. uh, specifically um, uh, uh, Guido Benedini. He's the CEO of Watch Angels and the gentleman that owns Waltham. His name is uh, Tony, B. De Tony Benedetto. Mm -hmm. um, they really trusted me to get the history and the facts and all of this spot on correct um they even let me into a few design meetings wanted my input of course um and for the thermo i was insistent upon that it have that 14 karat gold case back disc mm -hmm. just like the original had yeah. um and the yellow crystal um yeah. to try to keep the crown design as, yeah. as close with the shoulders on the sides um and i got them to get rid of the date window um mm -hmm. 
Uh, so it's it, the, the, the new thermo that's coming out, it's going to be a little bit cleaner, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more true back to the original. Um, so even more of the DNA of the original is, is going to be on, on that yep. one. So, and everyone seemed to be very glad that we didn't do a date window on that one. So there's some other things coming up uh, with those guys. Uh, they're going to stick with the military trend for the time being. I'm not allowed to say anything no. yet about what's coming up. I wish I could because it's pretty cool. Pretty yeah, cool. No. So definitely stay tuned. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I'll, I will personally definitely keep an eye on it. And I'm sure a lot of my followers will keep an eye on it. And I know uh, m- uh, my friend, like I said, who I gifted that Wolf and watch to, uh, will definitely keep an eye on it, mainly because, like I said, he lives down the road from one of the original Waltham buildings. So, you know, I think that's quite cool. Um, Stan, we're going to move on to the closing notes elements of, sure. of, of, of the podcast. So, you know, clearly, um, Without it goes without saying, guys. You know, in my in the closing notes, please go check out Stan, check out his his book, uh, and all the links in in the show notes because uh, they're going to be in there. Um, for me, this episode, my closing note for you is a Netflix TV series which has just come out, and it's called Kaleidoscope. So Kaleidoscope is similar. Is it? It's a money heist kind of TV series, and it's all about a, you know this this. Um, this master thief crack you know safe cracker who goes in to steal loads of money uh and each episode is an intertwined episode so a bit like the tv the film netflix film that they brought out a few years ago called bandersnatch it's in a enables you as the audience to watch it in the way that you want to watch it and there's something stupid like fifty-four thousand combinations that you can watch the film in uh, the series in because of the decision points within each episode and the order so yeah yeah so if you like heist kind of tv a bit of mystery a bit of thriller a bit of action but with a bit of a twist where you can have a different experience I I've just started it. Please go watch it. Um, there is a suggested way to watch it, however. So um, if you type in Kaleidoscope on Google and uh, you know something along the lines of what order, to, what order should I watch the Netflix series Kaleidoscope in? It will come up with the page which I found, and it gives you. There's three or four main variations which people suggest if you are of a certain mindset. So if you like a thriller more than a uh, more than a mystery you can watch it in a particular way and you'll get a little bit more out of it in that regard if you like introductions and conclusions you know and, and round out your story a little bit more and that's the kind of way you like tv there's a way to watch it like that and then there's a suggested way as well so um even though there's fifty four thousand combinations obviously so <laughs> go crack crack on um i like to think that that as a as a closing note will keep you entertained um until the next episode of the zulu time podcast um before we move on to the future of the Zulu Time podcast, um, Stan, what is your closing note if you haven't already suggested anything else? You know, uh, about watches, the thing that I am uh, would find very, that I'm finding very entertaining these days is that show Yellowstone. Yes. Is, that, is that. that on television over on over there? You can get it streamed, <laughs> um, but it's not on, on TV. You'd have to well, buy it they, online. They have this new one. It's like an offshoot of Yellowstone called 1923. Okay. Um, starring Helen Mirren and uh, Harrison Ford yeah. have joined have joined the cast as the two main characters, and even though the title of the series is 1923, it looks like they're going to do a lot of World War One flashback shots. Yeah. Uh, to when some of the Dutton family members were in uh, the trenches in yeah. World War One, 
Um, I'm really looking forward to that to see if they got the watches correct or if I'm yeah. going to scold them and told them that someone should <laughs> a call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, um, I, I find myself looking at watches now in, in military like series in general as well. You know, I think, so, you know, I'm I, being a, a military photographer for me, stuff like historical accuracy in terms of like TV and the military and portraying certain things for me is just something I, I notice now. Um, and the latest series that I finished and I suggested in the last couple of episodes was SAS Rogue Heroes, which is all about mm -hmm. the formation of the SAS. Again, fantastic detail in it overall, really good. If you haven't seen it, please go and watch it read the book, all that kind of stuff. But what I find quite funny is that the watches they used are quartz powered G10 watches. Uh, they are not accurate to the watches that were issued at the time. And you think <laughs> the level of, for the level of detail, I know it's only a tiny thing, but even if they just got white dialed watches, it would have just finished it off for me. And it'd been like, you know, yeah, I that's remember, fine. I remember when that movie 1917 came out, what was it, about mm -hmm. four or five years ago? I'm, I'm actually, I actually have a giant subway sized poster it's like yep. five feet by five feet on the wall directly next to me. Um, when when that, I went and saw it at the theater, obviously, uh, for mm. several reasons. Um, I wanted to learn about, you know, Sam Mendes' family story um, about their their service in World War One. Second, mm -hmm. I'm looking at the watches. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. obviously, uh, you can't hit pause in the movie theater. So as soon as it came out on DVD, I bought it. And yep. I, went, I went right to the watch scenes and I'm like pausing, you know, then I do like a, a pause play real quick to get like mm -hmm. a advance in a few frames. Um, they got the watches right in that one. Yeah, they did. They did. Yes, I really like, I, I really like as well, because um, obviously for those who haven't seen 1917, again, I'll put it in the closing notes. Please go watch it. Um, but oh, yeah. what I like, I, I like is obviously this, this impending thing of time is all the way through it. And like you said, the scene where I, remember the watch is obviously where, where he wakes up at night and it's the ticking and he looks at his watch and you know I just felt that that scene that cutaway was not required you know in the film really it wasn't required it added really no value but from watch geeks point of view obviously I absolutely oh yeah it. even but, uh, even they even got the crystal guard correct. exactly that yeah crystal guard was I mean. available in 1917 so whoever their prop director was yeah Exactly. You Good know, job. You got it right because a lot of movies don't. <laughs> exactly. You know, I was about to say, you know, and that was the thing that I appreciated as I knew they got it right. You know, I would have been able to tell you that prop guard was correct because of my, my knowledge. However, I knew that the watch was correct or period correct, you know, for that, you know, uniform for that soldier. And I just think, like I said, they didn't even have to show it. But the fact that they did, you know, for me was a really nice touch that they, you know, they went through the effort to get it right, yeah. even if it was just I mean, on the, the screen the, for three everything seconds. Everything was very, very accurate in that film, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. In fact, what's really interesting is actually when that film was being made was when I returned to UK. Um, I'd been posted overseas and actually a lot of the extras were serving soldiers. Um they, they got them out, obviously, and they interviewed them and they got them through the process to be extras. And a colleague of mine was one of the extras in the final over-the-top trenches. Oh, wow. Thing. Yeah, yeah. And um, I had a, a very long conversation with him about his experience, you know, and how they went in, did the uniform, did the costume, did all the, you know, getting them dirty and all that kind of stuff and how they directed them on screen. He said it was a fantastic experience. Um, yeah, but do yeah. a podcast with him. I'd like to, I'd like to learn <laughs> that story. Yeah, actually, Rob, Robin's a, a, an interesting bloke. He's a very interesting bloke, and he actually does have a few watches. I might see if he's if he's interested to to come on. Um, but yeah, 
There you go. Um, I will update my show notes. I'll put 1917 on there as well, just in case, because um, I don't believe I've ever suggested it. But yeah, um, Stan, thank you so much, mate, for giving up your time this evening to come and speak to me. All things watches, all things World War One, and all things trench watches. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I do hope that you um, obviously stay in touch, and I do hope that you um, can, you know, in future either give a uh, a presentation to the Military Watch Society, um, and or you know, like I said, meet up in England, or I said if I ever yeah, come across give them to my America, info. I'd uh, I'd love to participate. Fantastic, um, guys! Look forward to the next episode of the Zulu Time podcast. Uh, it's going to be another. It's it's going to be a joint episode. It's going to be uh, with the Rico's Watchers podcast with a, a gentleman over there called Eric. Um, there will be two discussions going on there, uh, and to get effectively both sides of that kind of conversation you'll have to do a similar thing to what we've done with the analog explorer podcast where you listen to aj's episode and my episode to kind of get both sides of it so that's the next iteration or the next couple of episodes for the zulu time podcast until then guys obviously enjoy yourself stay safe um and i look forward to uh talking to you in the future um stan thank you very much and yeah uh, great being with you today i had a great chat uh looking forward to doing something again perhaps yeah look forward to it bye guys until the next episode catch you in a bit Thank you.